I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today, we're going to talk about constant online life hurts kids. Rebecca Friedrichs, producer of Whose Children Are They, joins us to talk about her film coming out one week from today. Cawthorn survives a Democrat hit squad. And COVID, myths debunked, yet mandates tightened. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We're going to have a guest joining us in just a few minutes after our first five who has been on the show before. She's an author and she's also now a filmmaker. Her film is to be released in public theaters around the country a week from today. Her film focuses on public schools and we'll enjoy talking with her about her film, um, Whose Children Are They? What I want to talk with you about in the first five is kind of the idea about what happened to America's children during COVID and even prior to that, there was an opinion piece out that I, I really um, enjoy reading, uh, diving into today, which has to do with the idea that during COVID, a lot of what occurred is that parents figured out for the first time what their kids were learning in school and didn't like some of the things their children were learning. And they also learned how their children were learning. And many people focused on and began to recognize how much learning that children do is just on screen. And they're just watching a computer screen. They're on a Zoom call if they're doing remote school. And children have been, this didn't just occur during COVID, but it came to the attention of more parents during the school shutdowns related to COVID that their kids were just kind of learning online, staring at screens, staring at phones, staring at computers, and not engaging in human interaction. And again, began to occur prior to COVID. But has been a great thing recently is the attention being focused on America's public schools. Uh, we've been talking, as you know, on the show at great length about parents becoming aware of the kinds of things kids are taught, critical race theory, uh, all sorts of advocacy for the LGBTQ agenda that may not be consistent with the parents' views. That's kind of what they're taught. But this focus on how they're taught is really picking up steam. And I love this. I want to mention brief things in this article I was reading. Talk about the idea that as kids learn more and more on screen, and beside that they learn on screen, they play, like their playtime is on screen, the way they relax, the way they think, you know, you're taking a break from school and homework, so you're turning to your playtime, but you're still staring at the screen, staring at the computer, staring at your phone, and how it's actually harmed children's development in a variety of ways. I linked to an article on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down, list of links. I linked this article and there are many others like it. Basically making the point that there are many, many children in our country who really are not developing as they should in terms of their interaction with society, their ability to be creative, their ability to think of ideas on their own, their ability to interact with other people, to develop friendships. This article was talking about the idea some teachers have noticed even that children are losing their motivation, their creativity. Teachers gave examples of this. These are long-term teachers over 25 or 30 years saying, you know, kids were different 20 years ago. And they talk about, you know, asking the uh, class, who has some idea? What could we uh, focus on on this topic? What could we do? And they kind of stare at her. They just sit and stare at the teacher because they, they have lost in this endless immersion into what learning on screen that that you know normal human creativity that is in children in fact there was a um writing about the fact that children develop the quality of creativity usually and curiosity uh very young in life normally if they're engaging in kind of normal human behavior so this article runs through a bunch of ways in which children have suffered because of learning online it includes lacking creativity or the the 
impetus for uh, you know of being creative, uh, of being, thinking on their own, critical thinking skills. They kind of wait to be told what to turn to, what to do, and other even worse effects on children include increased uh, number of percentage of uh, children becoming depressed uh, at, among older children, even junior high age children, uh, increase in suicides, which of course many factors you can point to, but one that is pointed to is the uh, just the massive explosion of the iPhone and access to uh, online entertainment. And, and as one teacher was recounting, you know, when she asked the kids what to do over the weekend, you know, they well, I, I play this game, I, I, I learn this other game online. They play games on their computer. And the, and the idea of going outside, you know, uh, playing tag in the backyard, um, it just isn't even something they discuss anymore. And so just talking about just a, a consciousness of parents, uh, of not, as I say, not just what their kids learn, but how they're learning. And I'll close the first five by saying this. I dedicate this show, America Can We Talk, to preserving America. That's what I care about, preserving this country. Among the most precious things we can do as the adults in the room, as the patriots in the room, is to recognize we we must be guarding our children. We must be teaching them well about what America is, uh, what freedom means, what America's identity is. And we must be teaching them the school should be the normal place where kids are learning interaction with other children. They are encouraged to develop their skills of curiosity and question asking and connecting and friendship making as opposed to interacting between themselves and a screen on their iPhone or a screen on their computer. Really great point, a kind of a, you know, outside the um, mainstream when you ask people about how, do we, what do we do to preserve America? And they'll talk about, you know, fair elections and border security and, you know, a good tax policy that encourages a free market. But focusing in on what we teach our children, how we teach them is a huge part of saving America. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. So I mentioned we have Rebecca Friedrichs joining us. She's been on the show before. Before we bring her on, um, she is an author. And I want to show you the book that she wrote, uh, which she was on this, our show. And her book first came out, I think, yeah, there you go. Standing Up to Goliath. That is Rebecca right there in that picture. Standing Up to Goliath, um, which is her book. Um, and it has a subtitle, um, which I can't read from here. But anyway, it's a great book that she wrote about the basic idea of standing up uh, against the teachers union and kind of the entire um, establishment, education establishment in this country. Rebecca Friedrichs was a plaintiff in a, a case went all the way to the US Supreme Court that dealt with the question of whether or not teachers union members, teachers who are members of unions, must pay dues to unions who in turn use the money that they contribute for their dues. The union uses that money to invest in political campaigns and agendas that those teachers may not agree with. And it was a basic notion of, you know, should, should teachers actually be forced to donate to political causes? We would say disagree. So she was a plaintiff in that case at the Supreme Court, uh, the author of that book, Standing Up to Goliath. And now she is a, the, a producer of a film uh, which is going to be in theaters around America for one day, one week from today, Monday, March 14th, a film that addresses the, the title is a great title, Whose Children Are They? So let's say hello to Rebecca Friedrichs. Hey there. Hello. <laughs> it's great good, to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you. Okay. Um, I will tell you, we're gonna, for our listeners, I'm going to let uh, them in just a few minutes watch the trailer uh, of your film, uh, which I have seen a couple times. Uh, and it's a very, very good trailer, the trailer of your film. And also um, have them um, you know, hear how they can get tickets to the many theaters that'll be carrying your uh, film. Uh, here in the Dallas area, I've had friends texting me saying they're gonna go see it um, at a theater very near us. I'm waiting about, an, we'll get in a moment to where the uh, film will be, um, film be playing, but just start with what is the overall purpose or message if you're making this film, Rebecca? Well, we made this film because there really is a, a battle going on in America and the battle is for our children. And the answer to whose children are they? Well, God gave the children to the parents. The children belong to their parents. Parents are supposed to educate their children. Parents are supposed to bring them up in the way that the parents believe with the parents' virtues. And what's happening is our schools have been uh, completely usurped and infiltrated by these government so-called teacher unions who are using our schools as transmission belts for literally a socialist communist agenda and they are indoctrinating our children and it is their belief that the children belong to the state. 
They would like the children to become good little collectivists who do whatever the state tells them to do. So we are in a battle for the hearts and minds of our children. And we need to expose that our schools are no longer safe for our children. And uh, our goal is to help parents and teachers and community members to awaken to the fact that our schools have been usurped, that we all need to stand together. We need to stand with teachers, adopt teachers, bring them to this movie and help them to understand that they no longer have to pay these unions. Please stop paying the unions. And then we can all stand together, restore our schools, protect our children. And if we can restore our schools, we can save our country. That's such a great answer. And you're right. I love you're actually equating save our country by fixing our schools. I honestly, I think for most Americans, we were not aware until really the last few years how much public education had turned into radical leftist indoctrination. It kind of happened while the majority of parents were asleep at the wheel, they, and myself included. I'm not saying I recognize it either, but there was a long period in which that leftist ideology wormed its way into so much of the curricula that children study, and not just in college and grad school, which is its own set of problems, we're talking about K through 12, the kid that your young children going to school. Uh, and I, it really became a, apparent when people began to learn about critical race theory being taught in schools and realized what it was and learned about the LGBTQ advocacy agenda, very young children uh, being taught to being taught by their teachers that the LGBTQ agenda was the right way to think, the right way to think about themselves or identity. Um, and, and it took that to awaken parents. But then I love that you're pointing out it's even more than just those two areas of teaching. It's a broader kind of a, an undermine to leftist ideology uh, in public schools that has, uh, is now really many, uh, and you know that, uh, I think it was Japanese general or someone uh, made the comment after the Pearl Harbor, I, I fear we have awakened the sleeping giant. I think that parents are the sleeping giant that have been awakened. So tell us about this adopt a teacher program you created I love that concept. I'm so glad. Adopt a Teacher is such a key campaign. It's part of our For Kids and Country movement to help awaken teachers because teachers have been trapped in a corrupt system for decades. The unions took their stronghold in the 1960s and this cancel culture that everyone's experiencing now, teachers have experienced that for decades. And we've been bullied. Uh, the unions use mafia tactics to silence teachers. There's many teachers like myself who've been pushing back on the critical race theory, the sex ed, for 35 or more years, but we were silenced, we were bullied, we were isolated. We, we tried to warn parents a long time ago, but the union silenced us. So it's not teachers who are teaching all of these radical agendas, it's union activists who've been planted in our schools. So what we need is for all Americans who care and who see the truth here, to put their arms around every good teacher they know, adopt those teachers. You can learn how to do that at forkidsandcountry.org. Click on join the movement, click on adopt a teacher. It takes three minutes to learn how to do it. Basically, you're loving on them, you're educating them through taking them to the movie or giving them a copy of my book, which is a deeper dive to help these teachers to understand they've been used as pawns to fund a radical leftist agenda. And the reason they are trapped in a corrupt system the reason their classrooms have become war zones, the reason all these radical agendas are invading their classroom is the very union they've been funding all of these years. They were forced to fund them for decades. Most teachers have no idea that they've been freed. And by the way, all government employees have been freed. So if you're in a corrupt government union, you don't have to pay them any longer as well. So that's what we're hoping to educate these teachers. And we're hoping that parents and pastors and community leaders will put their arms around these teachers because they're terrified. Imagine being bullied for decades and, and isolated in your workplace. And uh, you, know, you need someone to stand with you. So that's what we're asking is that parents and teachers will come back together again so that we can fight these bullies, get them out of our schools. We can, we can force the unions out. Teachers can do that, but we need help. So that's our goal. And the last thing I'd love to say is, you know, our American founders told us the only way to keep a free republic is with a well-educated and moral citizenry that can self-govern. So the reason these unions are undermining our 
excellent education on purpose, undermining our children's morals, undermining the, the family structure is because they're trying to undermine our free republic. You can see the results of that now. It is so key that we stop this in our public <clears throat> schools and fix our schools so that we can save our country. I love that. I meant to mention when I was introducing you, Rebecca, you're in California, and California is a place where you taught. And I know in California, you have among the most, the strongest teachers unions in the country. I think the national one's probably even a bigger beast, but the California teachers union is very large. I will tell you here in the great state of Texas that we do have teachers unions, but they don't have very much power. But it's interesting because the behavior of teachers unions in defending uh, the leftist agenda that has invaded schools, defending critical race theory, defending the... Um, uh, LGBTQ advocacy, all that stuff, that role has, be, has bled over or, you know, uh, f spilled over the edge into the way the school boards, uh, and, and, and here in the great state of Texas, you have uh, independent school districts, so every county has an ISD, an independent school district, or has several of them, and the board members in, in some of those places, too, have embraced or taken on that same role as teachers did, or the teachers unions did, and just kind of, they think they've been told, here's the agenda, here's what we're gonna teach. And they treat parents as though they have no right to ask questions, to uh, suggest that they're concerned about direction of, of the education that their kids are experiencing, and really no right to participate. So um, I was gonna say, it's, it's even broader than unions, at least here in Texas, I think other places, the, the school boards have kind of locked arms with this leftist teacher union ideology. And I, I, was, I really wanna rejoice with you a little bit. You must be loving these stories of parents showing up at teachers, at, at school boards, uh, ISD or school board meetings and standing up for their children. I'm sure you've been watching that story and enjoying it, right? I'm thrilled about it because for years we've been trying to get parents involved and parents were too afraid to speak out or they thought we, certainly it can't be as bad as Rebecca and her friends are saying it is. So we're thrilled parents are speaking out. The one thing I would say to parents is do not ask for permission from these school boards. The reason your school boards are corrupt is because teacher unions pour millions into local school board races and they have they work with their uh, political allies like ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, Planned Parenthood. There's all these different far left organizations who have literally infiltrated our schools. Texas, you're not safe. I have seen all kinds of radical ideology in Texas schools. I hear from Texas teachers all the time and parents who are fighting this. It's a massive mess. It's a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a corrupt system. And the only way we can fix it is if parents and teachers keep standing together and we chase out every one of those special interest groups. And it's good to note that the PTA has been corrupted by the so-called teacher unions. The PTA has a neutral, neutral stance now. They cannot stand any, against anything the teacher unions do. So if you're in the PTA, get out of the PTA. Start your own local um, parent organization. We have to take back control of our schools. Parents, good teachers supporting you, standing for what's right for our children, excellent education so that we can restore our American Republic. I love that. Yeah, just, yeah. As I say, you're singing my tune. Um, I love that, and I love your uh, fire and passion about it. And I have—I've just been rejoicing on the show when they have parents who will show up at school boards and just whether whether it is masks, which they aren't healthy for their children, whether it's critical race theory. I will tell you, as a quick aside, uh, a speaker I had at my summit last year, I think, uh, was yeah, it was a woman who grew up under in communist China under Mao Zedong, and she talked about at a school board in Loudoun County, Virginia. She gave a speech. I mean, she comes from China, understanding Mao Zedong's and his horrific treatment of his own people. Um, and she said basically what critical race theory is doing is exactly what Mao Zedong did to the people of China. She's trying to expose it for, because the left tries to say, they're just trying to promote racial understanding, everyone understand each other better. And she's saying, no, this is Mao Zedong all over again. And, and really warning people uh, that you're gonna have horrific division in our society if you let it uh, go forward. Okay, I just had to get that in because I love, uh, her name is uh, She Van Fleet. I was trying to think of her name. She Van Fleet, great, great speaker, uh, talking about um, how uh, America is, Mao Zedong is, um, you know, horrific treatment of people in China was very much like what CRT is. Okay, so Rebecca, I wanted to have our listeners get to see, we have a little clip, a teaser, a sizzle reel um, of your film, Whose Children Are They? I'm gonna ask Mr. Becker to play that now. 
public education has gone off the rails. Once you get into this idea that it's really the government's job to educate children, uh, you end up in a very, very dangerous place, and I don't see anything good coming out of that. When we look at this radical agenda, the way our children are being exploited and the way parents are getting shut out, it comes down to one fundamental question. Whose children are they? Whose children are they? Whose children are they? De quién son esos niños? Whose children are they? Where did this idea come from that we're even asking whose children are they? It's where all the money is. It's why the union is there. It's why it's so corrupt. Now it's about power and money and politics and somehow the kids are getting lost in all of that. Our teachers are bullied. Parents are shut out. America as we know it is being reimagined in a very dangerous way. I just like to fire into my butt and that's why I want to put a stop to critical race theory so that a lot of friendships can be saved and that we can just all get along. You know, I hesitate to say that there was a silver lining to COVID, but parents suddenly had this window into what their children were learning day in and day out. Critical race theory is dividing our children in ways that are unacceptable. It pits one race against another. You cannot use racism to eradicate racism. Less than one third of America's school children are proficient in anything. They're teaching these kids X-rated sex acts. I don't want my daughter exposed to that. The school system wants to indoctrinate us teachers first before we indoctrinate your kids. Certain ways of thinking are approved and certain ways of thinking are not. They sentenced me to jail because I wanted a better education for my daughters. They're not interested in tolerance. Their whole goal is to intimidate, to silence the opposition. There's so much damage done by the lockdown on the students. Days turned into weeks and then months. It doesn't actually surprise me that there's been um, more suicides. I know I've had those thoughts. They told me, if you want to teach, you'll sign. We want to make sure that teachers know that you do have another option. Right now in schools, it is not safe to be a teacher. This was the most preventable mass murder in American history. Less than 30 seconds, it was done. And my daughter was murdered at the school. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you're a mom and a dad first. And if we lose this battle on the educational front, then we lose not only our country, but we lose our kids. And we lose the ability to bring our children up the way that we want. They are assaulting parental rights. They are not respecting our cultures, our values. They're not respecting our voice. The reality is we're not dissenters, we're the parents. So the question has to be asked. Okay, I love that. Uh, Rebecca, that is just a fabulous, fabulous trailer. I want to be sure and play the whole thing. For our listeners, I want to talk to Rebecca a few more minutes, but uh, Mr. Becker, I sent you a, you are a, a link to tell people how they can find tickets. Uh, you can find tickets at this, um, okay, I, I'm not sure how you do that. Whose children are they dot com, is it? Uh, I do want to make people know you can find tickets because I went on that earlier today. Uh, just, just sent just a, um, uh, what that URL gave me, and then when you opened it, it just said, you know, where are you? Because I know right here in this North Texas area, the film is playing many places, but one day only, March 14th, a week from today, um, and it's playing in uh, places around the country, but you've got to be sure to get in and see it then. It's the kind of thing that, um, you know, it can change a community. If enough parents see this and they recognize the problem, I'm assuming later maybe that the film be available in video format or some other way that you can share it and you know have people come in your home and listen to it because the parents taking charge of schools 
is really what's going to happen when you watch this film. So we still have Rebecca, right? We still have her. I'm still yeah. here. Okay. Okay. Can you bring her back? There you go. Sorry. I'm like, okay, we have this funny thing. I can't quite see him. Anyway, um, so Rebecca, how long did you work on this? This film looks extraordinary. How much, how long did time have you been working on this? Oh, thank you. Well, my husband and I started working on it in faith about three and a half years ago, but I, I guess it was about a year and a half ago that we started partnering with um, a production team and uh, really started uh, getting it more linked together. We already had a lot of footage, but we brought in some more and brought it together. I want to answer some of the questions you asked, though. Uh, people can see this movie in theaters on Monday, March 14th, but they can also go to whosechildrenarethey.com, and there's a button they can click that says um, something like uh, show it at my church or something like that. You can show this movie at your church, your school, your community center, whatever you want, um, starting March 14th through April 14th. It's a ticketed event that can be ticketed through your uh, your church or your school or whatever. So there are opportunities to see it over the next, uh, for a 30 day period. And then after that, it will go uh, be available in other forms. I love all that. And I'll tell you, there's something so great about, I know other films, when you have such an important point to get out, and it's not the kind of point that mainstream media wants to help you get out, that one thing people can do as activists is eventually get the film uh, in whatever format it is to download, but you know, invite your neighbors over, invite your church group over, show it at your church. This is how people can spread the word when really uh, the, the forces of the anti-American left very much do not want you to see a film like this, do not want you to start thinking you have power to shape the agenda of the public schools. They do not want you thinking you really should have anything to do with that at all with what the public schools are are doing. And so uh, the idea of you, you, the listener, you, the advocate for children, spreading the message of this by playing this film in your home and your community, is just a great, great, great idea. Okay, so Rebecca, for people who want to uh, help, jump in and help, they can uh, find the film um, on, uh, just go to your website, whosechildrenarethey.com, find a theater. Uh, they can also, as an email address, which I sent to Mr. Becker, I think he now has, I can quick put up. Four Kids in Country, the, the numeral for our radio listeners, it's the numeral four, kids, K-I-D-S, and spelled out A-N-D, country, at gmail.com. For kids in country, at gmail.com. If you want to say, hey, I live in, you know, Topeka, is there someplace around here I can see this film? Send an email to their to that email address and ask because they want nothing more than to find more and more people who are interested in uh, seeing the film and supporting it and getting the message out there. So, Rebecca Friedrichs, you are just one amazingly energetic uh, advocate for uh, children and for teachers and for schools and for the country. So, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me. Um, can you get her back up on screen there? Take uh, there we go. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to join me and um, appreciate very much. And any last quick remarks for our listeners? I'd love to give you the last shot. Yeah, thank you, Debbie. It's always a blessing to be with you. People can go to um, whosechildrenarethey.com and they can type in their zip code to find out exactly the closest theater to them. That's the fastest way. The uh, for kids and country at gmail.com, we're putting that out because there's a special young man in our movie and his name is Ty McCurry. He's a great young man and he's in the Dallas area. And we still don't know the exact theater at which he will be attending. So if people want to support him, they can uh, email us at forkidsandcountry at gmail.com and then we can let them know exactly what theater they can go to to support wonderful Ty. He's the most amazing young man, a middle schooler. So thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to fight for our kids and for our country. And we can do this. We at the grassroots can turn this country around if we have the courage to stand up to these Goliath bullies in our schools and to take our schools back. Rebecca Friedrichs, thank you so much for joining me. Great to see you, thanks so very much. I really urge everyone to uh, go see the film and read her books and spread the word. For our radio listeners, we're heading off to a break in just a few minutes. I wanna be a few seconds. I wanna tell you, you're listening to America Can We Talk? My name is Debbie Georgiatis. We have a website, americacanwetalk.org. At that website, you can listen to past shows, past interviews, subscribe to our newsletter, read our blog. But we'll be back after a three-minute break for a whole other half an hour. Come right back. For our listeners online, I want to tell you, I always try to squeeze a little story in here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, and I tell you, while our radio listeners have gone uh, off to radio advertisement land, um, I want to tell you this really cool thing that happened with uh, a U.S. congressman named Madison Cawthorn. I brought this up a few months ago. 
You know, the Democrats have decided, the anti-American left has decided shortly after January 6, 2021, when there was a, a protest at the U.S. Capitol that got slightly out of control. It was not the, you know, it was not the uh, insurrection the left tries to claim it was, but it did get out of control. But at, shortly after that event of January 6, 2021, the anti-American left labeled that event an insurrection, which actually has a legal definition. And what occurred on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol is nothing, does not even come close to legally meeting the definition of insurrection. However, I do want to tell you that what has occurred, the left consciously chose that term, we have come to find out, because part of the agenda of the anti-American left is to try to make President Trump ineligible to run for president again, and for anyone who supported him, ineligible by labeling them as insurrectionists or having committed or participated or supported an insurrection. And the reason they did all this kind of thinking was that in our 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, there is a clause in that 14th Amendment that's called the Disqualification Clause. And in short, it basically says no person can be a senator or representative of Congress, um, skipping all the middle part, who, blah, 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 who's previously taken oath, um, who shall have engaged in an insurrection or rebellion. The left chose the label insurrection for January 6th with explicit intention, in my opinion, explicit intention of trying to force the issue and claim that President Trump or anyone who supported him could not be eligible to run for president or any other office. Well, there's a gentleman who is a congressman uh, named Madison Cawthorn uh, in North Carolina, and he was in Washington on January 6th. I believe he may have spoken at the event. In any case, the anti-American left Democrats brought a lawsuit in North Carolina trying to say essentially because he was there on January 6th, he was encouraging the people, you know, he's part of it, he's committed insurrection, and he therefore is not eligible to run for his seat in Congress again. Fortunately, actually sane uh, heads prevailed, and in the state of North Carolina, the U.S. District Court judge listened to the arguments of the uh, anti-American left and just said, you know, th that's crazy, I'm sorry. Number one, just so you want to know, Congress had actually passed a law. The United States Congress passed a law uh, in the 1880s, I think it was, 1872, where they said the insurrection clause, basically they took the insurrection clause out, which is actually in the amendment itself, says Congress can do. So it's not even in effect anymore. For our radio listeners, welcome back. This is America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We're talking about, in the great state of North Carolina, the effort of the Democrats to make Congressman Madison Cawthorn ineligible to run for Congress again, trying to claim he's ineligible because he falls under the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment, um, in which basically says you can't run for Congress, etc., if you've committed, been part of an insurrection. They're trying to say because he was in January 6th, uh, in Washington, January 6th that day, um, and, and supportive of President Trump, that he's ineligible to run. A, a, a judge, fortunately, fell in front of a judge who actually follows the law, um, who reasonably concluded that, the, um, that of course, he's eligible to run. Um, and, and in fact, the very insurrection clause language in the 14th Amendment had been explicitly overruled as the amendment provides in its language was allowed to happen. The amendment said that Congress could overrule this, and Congress did in 1872 said, you know, we're not going to have this. They passed a law called the Amnesty Act and basically said, we're not going to enforce a disqualification clause. It's ineligible. It doesn't exist anymore. So it doesn't even exist to start with in law. I mean, it's written in the original amendment, but doesn't exist in law, is not enforceable. And fortunately, a judge uh, found so and said, of course, Madison Cawthorn is eligible. The reason this is so consequential is that this was a plan the left set up. I'm very sure those who mounted the attack to label the January 6th event in Washington on, in 2021 as an insurrection was because they had in mind the idea they're somehow going to be able to prevent President Trump from running for office again because they want him to be labeled as having committed insurrection. So the fact that a federal district court judge looked at this and threw it out said this is ridiculous. Of course he's eligible to run and on the grounds that the disqualification clause is not even enforced in effect any longer uh, is, is a good sign for those. I'm not necessarily saying all this because I want President Trump to run again in 2024. I understand uh, he's strongly considering it. Uh, you know, he, he hasn't asked my opinion, shockingly, so I don't know if he's going to do it, but he's strongly suggesting he is uh, going to. And my real point is, 
you have to understand, this is a great example, understanding how the anti-American leftist mindset works. They don't want someone so popular with the American people, so popular with his base, to run again. So instead of thinking of the reasons they could stand up and say, you know, we, agree, we disagree with his policy on this, he's wrong about this, we stand for this, he stands for that, we're right, he's wrong, the kind of thing you're actually supposed to do in political campaigns, they try to find a way to make him ineligible. I mean, is this the, that, that, you know, it's a cancel culture on steroids, it is a, we're going to take him out because we hate him, and we don't really care if we have to contort and twist the law to do it. That was the mindset of the people who thought this insurrection clause would make Madison Cawthorn ineligible and, of course, make Trump ineligible. And at least as of this ruling, this judge said, that's ridiculous. Of course, Madison Cawthorn can run. Interestingly, one more point about this. One of the lawyers pushing this view, this interpretation of the 14th Amendment, is Mark Elias, M-A-R-C, Mark Elias. And you're thinking, I know that name. So Mark Elias is a, you know, a, a Democrat operative uh, since time began. You know, he's a... Um, He's a Democrat operative of, of extraordinary um, force involvement. Um, anyway, what he ended up tweeting out uh, before the litigation was even filed. He tweeted out in 2021, my prediction for 2022, before the midterm election, we'll have a serious discussion about whether individual Republican House members are disqualified by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment from serving in Congress. We may even see litigation. This is what he, this is what he, Elias, is saying. Uh, and then later, um, he says, I am making clear that members of Congress who are engaged, who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States are not eligible to serve in Congress. So he's trying, he was kind of the, you know, uh, to the extent, he's kind Kind of the legal impetus behind it, the argument behind that they should go to court and try to pick on someone who supported President Trump, see if they can pick him off on, under the disqualification clause. Um, and, and interestingly, Mark Elias is himself now under extreme scrutiny um, for his conduct uh, by, a Dur by Durham, by special counsel uh, Durham, who's looking into the broad uh, wrongdoing of the uh, Clinton campaign, the 2016 election, all that was behind all that complete cooking up of a false Russian hoax by the Clinton team and following on. Mark Elias is in the middle of all that. So this is a guy trying to disqualify other people for, you know, a, a non-insurrection event uh, and who actually himself was, I think, and many people, I will just say it, I think that our country needs to begin to look very closely once we have you know, law-abiding citizens back in control of the government uh, and the Department of Justice and the FBI look very closely at the question of whether there are criminal charges still to be brought on a very high level, such as potentially even treason, potentially an insurrection in the conduct of the people who attempted to, in the 2016 election cycle, uh, concoct an utterly false story of the Russia collusion hoax, used it to try to bring down candidate Trump, later President Trump, fully aware, certainly at least, that Hillary Clinton and her uh, clique, whoever she, she was confiding in, all of them realized they cooked it up, and yet they're letting the whole country you know, stew and squirm under this allegation of Russia-Trump collusion. Elias, in the middle of all that, um, and now he's being looked at by Durham. So kind of interesting. He, Elias, is, you know, pompous enough to be going after someone for supporting the president and trying to say you're ineligible because you committed insurrection because you, uh, you know, support President Trump. But he's actually involved in what many people, I think, ultimately will look at and say, actually, you know, what happened in 2016 was pretty darn near an insurrection. Or at least it was a it was an effort to overthrow uh, the duly elected president of the United States with a complete Farce. And the question will become, of course, what did Elias and many, many others know? When did they know it? When did they finally figure out that Hillary cooked up the whole thing as a campaign smear? What did they know when they knew it? Okay, that, enough of that story today. I want to, one other thing um, I want to hit today, and this has uh, just about COVID. I will say, of course, I recognize that the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict is, is ongoing. Of course, I recognize there's just great... Um, you know, great concern for the citizens of the Ukraine, the innocent citizens, uh, great concern about Putin, Russia's Putin, President Putin, and his aggression toward the Ukraine. I spent much of the morning reading articles and, and reading postings and thinking through and watching videos. And I will get to that story either tomorrow or Wednesday. But what I wanted to say about it today is 
there's far more than appears uh, at the surface of things. It's not a simple, you know, Russia bad, aggressor, Ukraine good, innocent. The, the people of the Ukraine are innocent. The much higher level thinking, uh, broader thinking, uh, kind of international geopolitical thinking, much, much bigger than, than uh, just that. And we will get to that, but I, I don't want to hit that story in any more detail today. I do want to talk about COVID. And I want to ask you, I'm totally serious. Try, if you can, to put yourself in your head back to where you thought about life, how you were thinking about life, at kind of the end of 2019. So we still had a year left of the Trump presidency and we get into January, 2020 and into February and March. And this COVID thing from China came along. The, the Wuhan virus came along. This, you know, what we now know to have been a virus uh, cooked up in the Wuhan lab. Uh, didn't come from the bats at the fish market. Um, it was a, you know, it's a, it's a bioweapon developed in the Wuhan lab. We now know that it was funded at least in part by money from Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the NIH money, uh, pushing money toward uh, this gain of function research. So we know all that, but put yourself back before we knew this came along. And just picture the end of 2019, if anyone had told you that there was any healthcare problem, any healthcare problem of, of any kind, new disease or old disease, in which doctors who found effective treatments for those that disease would be the subject of investigation by state medical boards, would be threatened with a loss of their license by because of providing treatments that were effective to people who were suffering from COVID, suffering from some disease, that the government would have orchestrated an entire push toward a new vaccine, toward a vaccine uh, as yet not created, but because of the, or as far as we knew, not created, uh, from this new disease. So we were just, you know, we're just going through 2019, you know, it's the fall, you know, we get flu season, comes in the winter, you know, people get sick, they get the flu, they get colds, whatever, they move on. But try to put yourself in that mindset and then transport yourself instantly to where we are now. And, we're, and I want to talk about that because I think it just that I've used that expression in the past, how we get um, conditioned and, and facts move us along and, and incremental changes happen. And sometimes it's really, really helpful in order to understand the big picture, to step back from every little incremental step along the way and, and look at how much society has transitioned and how, as we look back at things now, how utterly crazy it is what's occurring now. Okay, that's enough generalities, but I, uh, I, I think you can't, you can't, you will be extremely helped in your capacity to understand what's occurring if you can make yourself play that mental game. Just think about how life was in 2019 and, and someone has said, well, actually, you know, in 2022, uh, you know, you won't be allowed to go to restaurants. You won't be allowed to get on airplanes. You won't be allowed to, you will have your entire life ruled by a bunch of bureaucrats in your state, mostly at the encouragement of the federal NIH, the federal government, you'll have doctors threatened with losing their license and getting uh, or suspending their license and, and all, gets all sorts of other punishments and uh, disciplinary proceedings for providing things that actually work to make people better. You would say, you would have said, and you would, the only sane answer you would have given is, well, that's ridiculous, that won't happen here. Now let's look where we are in 2022. COVID did come along, and I am not, I will tell you, I, 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 did, I do know people who passed on from COVID. I do understand COVID is real, it's not, a, COVID itself is not a farce. COVID is real, it's a disease, and people did die. And I'm very sorry for the loss of any life. And we, we know a few people who passed on from COVID. And I'm very, very sorry that that happened. I, I don't want anyone to pass along, pass on. But we know people who passed on from many other diseases also. And, and, but yet, somehow with COVID, everything has changed in how we think. But here we are in 2022. And here are the facts that we know now. As compared to what we knew in the beginning when COVID first came along. Number one. The PCR tests that were used, the you know, nose, the, the swab up your nose, PCR test, were profoundly unreliable and produced orders of magnitude, large numbers of false positives. Now, just that fact alone, if someone has said to you, 
you know, well, actually, they'll develop these tests, and they are completely unreliable, and they geared up the way they measure the test outcome to create massive, you know, false positives. You, I mean, you would think, well, why would that happen in America? But that's what happened. That's what happened. And we're still using these PCR tests. Number two, the COVID deaths were vastly overcounted, both in America and other countries. At one recent study, there was a Freedom of Information Act uh, talking about the deaths in England and Wales in 2020. And um, I mean, I don't know how much data I can stand to go through, but to make the point, countries around the world reported COVID deaths. And then as we were forced, we were able to get into it, dive into the details more, uh, we realized that many of the people, that the vast majority of people who died from COVID had another pre-existing comorbidity. I mean, basically the people who passed on were sick with, with other serious problems. It doesn't mean their death doesn't matter. Of course it matters. And it doesn't mean that we don't try to protect them. Of course you try to protect them. But we had this, this uh, image of the number of COVID deaths being splashed across the headlines around the world every day. And it made people afraid to step out of their house. There are still people afraid to step out of their house. But now as truth is shining, the, line, the light of truth is being shined on a lot of this data, um, for example, just I, I, I'm going to run through some quick things that won't be that complicated. You can follow this. So uh, this is in England and Wales, first quarter of 2021. Um, and there were um, the vast majority, basically in England and Wales, uh, uh, almost 5,000 deaths where they were all in seniors age over 65. And of all of the deaths in the first quarter of 2021, 6,400 something, a total of only 346 died from COVID alone. Point being, they had other serious problems, but we let this COVID thing become mysterious and alarming. And so we, and, and because it became mysterious and alarming, we submitted to and surrendered to policies that restricted our freedom. And the, the data that these studies have come up with, and again, um, I, I can't urge you strongly enough to go to my website and read these things yourself. The website is americacanwetalk.org on the homepage under shows, drop down, list of links. Uh, basically, the data has been reviewed by Dr. John Campbell, reviewed recent data released by the United Kingdom uh, in response to a Freedom of Information Act. Um, the, the numbers basically are showing that the, uh, the largest percentage of people, the vast majority of people who passed on from COVID had um, some other pre-existing condition. Um, and, um, and they also had, I mean, these things, overcounting of COVID deaths. Um, yeah. And they actually, what they have as one example, they had people who passed on within 28 days of a positive test all counted as a COVID death without really knowing what the person died of. You know, they may have had a car accident, but they counted, they used every conceivable statistical trick possible to increase the number of deaths they reported. They also in America and, and UK um, were, were not honest with the people pointing out that mostly the people, people who passed on from COVID were uh, close to death based on other uh, ex existing conditions they had. Um, and so we, you had people who were, um, in fact, let me just give you some of these numbers from our own CDC highlights, the role of comorbidities in Vax COVID death. Okay, 77% of people who received the COVID jab and yet died with the COVID also had uh, at least four comorbidities. So people had, it, basically the quote out of Walensky was, COVID is a lethal risk only for the sickest among us. And that's true whether you're vaccinated or not. COVID is a risk to the most people already most seriously ill. And that's true whether you're vaccinated or not. Um, I mean, I, the, the, number, the data are just so overwhelming. And there are other things I wanna share with you about this because I, I wanna contrast what we now know about COVID and yet what the government is doing. I mean, we had, we had massive over-reporting of COVID deaths because we had allowed hospitals to report deaths because someone passed on and had COVID and count that as a COVID death versus passed on with some other cause of death really bringing about their demise. But because they had COVID also, they happened to be carrying COVID. Maybe they weren't even very ill from COVID, but that was counted as a COVID death. We vastly over-reported the deaths of COVID. We also 
had a huge number of deaths coming from the ventilators, the ventilating machines, which very early on, you know, were just the biggest emergency. We ran to create more and more of them. And then we discovered that there were actually, the ventilators themselves um, were, were a likely cause of death for vast, vast number of COVID deaths. As early as April, 2020, doctors warned about putting COVID-19 patients on mechanical ventilation and warned it would increase their risk of death. One investigation showed a staggering 80% of COVID-19 patients in New York City who were placed on ventilators died, causing doctors to question their use. On top of that, um, there, are, there are many other treatments they could have uh, pursued beside being intubated on the ventilator, but they wouldn't do it. I really, I wanna help, I'm trying here to, to bring us up to date and where we really are in understanding COVID before I tell you these two stories, which I find simply mind-blowing, where we're continuing to humor COVID and treat it as though, I call this segment, uh, COVID myths debunked and yet mandates are tightened. Uh, the other just huge bunch of data I wanna tell you, because it just matters to know these things. And again, these are on our website. Go to our website, read it yourself at americacanwetalk.org. Okay, number one, what we've discovered is vaccines do next to nothing to curb Omicron transmission. So people would say, well, okay, because, because much earlier, in fact, last year in the fall, many doctors in America were saying the COVID pandemic is over in America. It's over. I mean, the pandemic level problem is over. And so you have people, but oh, you know, but Omicron, that's the next thing. So Omicron was supposed to keep us frightened and at home and waiting for a vaccine. So Pfizer is now acknowledging basically the, uh, the vaccines do, do next to nothing to curb Omicron transmission. Uh, I think it's just like Omicron transmission. Anyway, the second dose very clearly, they basically said, we have seen with the second dose, this is a Pfizer CEO, we've seen with the second dose very clearly that the first thing we lost was the protection against infections. So they get the shot and they lose their protection against infections. Two months later, what used to be very strong in hospitalization also went down. Basically, they're, they're not finding um, health. They're not finding protection uh, from, the, um, from these shots, uh, that even with Omicron. Number two, lockdowns. Now, study after study is showing overall were extremely harmful. Um, and you know people were getting shamed. Oh, you're going to go to a workout just to endanger other people? Uh, a new Johns Hopkins study shows a growing database of research on the monstrous failure of lockdowns. Meta-analysis reviewing thousands of studies, analyzing the 34 most reliable ones found lockdowns had little or no effect on COVID mortality. So we didn't need to be locked down like you know, lab animals um, because it didn't affect COVID, COVID mortality and it carried with it immense economic and social costs. So I'm telling you these things because there are studies, 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 people out there who are in the medical world and who are in the policymaking world, they read these things. Maybe you don't have time to do it because you have a life and a job and a family and things to do, but the people paying attention know these things I am reading to you. Okay, so early up in the, the early models that made it sound like COVID was gonna be really over, or just, just you know, overwhelmingly deadly, they turned out to be inaccurate. Um, the New York Times has now acknowledged of all places, boosters are wildly ineffective. Um, coaster, uh, COVID booster shots lose most of their potency after about four months. Also, uh, data, there's, there's data from the CDC, the Times piece, uh, New York, um, uh, Johns Hopkins, data from Denmark, showing those under 40, uh, the boosted population having the highest rates of infection. I am not against you know, vaccines. I'm not against the, the medical community trying. But what I really want to get to, why I was asking you earlier to picture yourself, how did you think about life in the end of 2019 versus now? We have become hypnotized, mesmerized by the idea of fear of COVID to the point, to the point that people just wait to be told, is there another jab? Should I be able to go out of my house? Should I be able, am I allowed to do this? People wait to be told because they're so frightened. And yet the data are showing the vaccines do not prevent, and they, the vaccines don't prevent you from contracting COVID. They don't prevent you from spreading COVID. They don't prevent, prevent you from dying from COVID. They're not vaccines in any normal use of that term. Same, same thing with respect to Omicron and the procedures we did embrace, this lockdowns, forced isolation, masks, also shown many studies, not effective. So in the normal medical world, in the normal human world, 
when these facts became known, doctors, medical establishments, medical boards, NIH, CDC, FDA, they'd all be looking for data. This is what doctors and medical science do. They look for data. They'd be looking at this data and saying, you know what, actually, we need to revise our advice now because, you know, it turns out we weren't really, we didn't need to be doing all these things. That would be the advice that you, they, the normal reaction of a doctor and a medical institution in any country and should be is continuing to look at data. What you saw instead, especially out of America, uh, the NIH and Dr. Fauci was a hysterical determination to force vaccines on Americans, to mislead Americans about the efficacy of all sorts of other treatments. And this is now, we are now in 2022. We're in March 2022. We're over two years into this. All this data is out and you cannot get these people to budge off what they've said. Now I want to tell you these two amazing stories. Uh, one is that, um, okay, three amazing stories. And for our radio listeners, I know I'm going to run out of time with you. I'm going to tell our listeners some amazing facts. I'm sorry you're going to have to go before I get to them. I'll try to say them quickly. Number one, Fox News and Newsmax, two you know, alleged conservative outlets, took Biden White House money to push COVID vaccines on its viewers. And I will say, this was, it should have been incumbent on Fox and Newsmax to say, the reason we're reporting stories to push the vaccines is because we're getting paid by the White House. And the White House, my, by the way, my friends, should not be using your tax dollars to push out the vaccines, especially when they're repressing the story of the other treatments that were effective. Second story is the Surgeon General of the United States of America is now seeking online, seeking the uh, social media companies to turn in people who talk about, who say anything about the COVID vaccines as negative. Think about that. Surgeon General pushing the social media companies to turn in people who don't support the government's view of COVID. Last thing, okay, our listeners on radio, say goodbye for now. Talk to you tomorrow. Um, the last thing I'll tell you is in light of everything we know now, that including children do not get ill from COVID, do not die from COVID. The vast majority of people who pass on from COVID have comorbidities, extreme obesity, and, and were very senior in age. So those are facts that we now have. And yet in California, in California, they have no less than eight bills lined up, uh, all of them essentially pushing vaccines on children. I'm out of time for today to do this story. I'm gonna come back and finish this tomorrow. I cannot urge you strongly enough to recognize that we are living in this like parallel universe. Facts and truth are out there about COVID. And the left who has just taken advantage of COVID as a means, as a vehicle to control your life, they are still pushing. In California, eight new bills proposed to try to force vaccines on children, often without parental consent or knowledge. That's and because they see it as a vehicle to control the people. I have to get more of this tomorrow. I, I, sorry I'm out of time to do this Hey, I got to get to my why it matters to you. Um, okay, actually, even before I do that, one last thing tonight, very, very quickly, uh, in just a couple of hours, there's an event coming in Dallas. It's called Who Will Defend the Republic? Panel discussion moderated by me with Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. And there you have it. It's at the um, Beck Studios, at the Mercury Studios. It's very cool. Um, and you can still, yeah, if you scan that, take a screenshot of that scan, you can still join us tonight. Um, it'll be a great, great event. I think check-ins at 6 or check-ins at 6.30, event starts at 7. Um, I will hope to see you there. Now, my friends, I'll tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we got to our first story. was constant online life hurts kids even without COVID masks and lockdowns. Children everywhere are voluntarily locked onto watching inanimate phone and computer screens and noticeably suffering loss of motivation, loss of creativity. And COVID masks and social distancing and children everywhere have suffered. Two years of slow development, especially speech development for the very young, stilted human interaction, no ability to react to smiles and frowns. Parents must reclaim their preeminent place in parenting and loving children. As Rebecca, Rebecca Friedrich's movie asks, whose children are they? And as to Cawthorn surviving the Democrat hit squad, uh, leftist lawyers arguing any personal touch with the January 6th equals participation in an insurrection against the government and is therefore grounds for disqualification for elective office under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. 14th Amendment targeted disqualification of post-Civil War Southerners. However, disqualification was expressed explicitly 
nullified by 18, in 1872 by a vote of the House of Representatives. First left as target in 2022, Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina setting the stage to use the same argument against President Trump if he ran again. First ruling in 2022, 1872 vote was conclusive. 14th Amendment's disqualification provision no longer in force. Cawthorn's free to run for, for re-election. Super irony, some leftist lawyers attacking Cawthorn may be indicted themselves for their role in the insurrection against Trump in 2016. And finally, COVID myths debunked, yet mandates tighten. COVID myths have been debunked across the board. Deaths were grossly exaggerated, overcounted. Lethality largely defined by comorbidities. Masks never worked. Lockdowns were a healthcare economic disaster. Hospitals were incentivized by cash for dangerous treatments with remdesivir and ventilators. Vaccines are not safe and effective by historical standards, had no effect on Omicron, and vaccine passports for restaurant patronage are being dropped even in New York City. That's one bit of good news. Yet, California legislature moving ahead with vaccine mandates for children and teenagers. What in the world is the agenda of California and others still pushing COVID fear and mandates? And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak up and stand up for America and its unique and extraordinary greatness. I do this show to stand up for America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth About America.